You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. I knew you guys were waiting for that curveball. It's so good to see you. I see some of your faces. Uh, others are, are masked, and that's good. Um, we expect uh, kids to wiggle um, and to make noise, um, and adults can do that also. But, man, let's just talk about this. Man, like, God might have had to kill a polar bear to give us this kind of weather. Like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, I mean, yeah, have a Coke, you know, um, as a Coke polar bear. Okay. We, uh, we're going to be in the Psalms uh, for the next several weeks, and I don't know exactly when we won't be. And the benefit of the Psalms is uh, that they lead us in a, a varying different emotions. Like when you look at the Psalms, like you're going to see moments where it's just heightened expression of praise, like a certainty that God sees you and that God feels you. But you're also going to see deep, deep laments. Like an absolute uncertainty. Does God actually see me? Is he actually hearing my prayers? Does he ever even respond? Like you're going to see all these. We get the benefit with the Psalms to eavesdrops on people's prayers as they look to God and they say, can I trust you? Are you even here? And then we see other things like just sadness and loss. You see certainty and fortitude. Like the thing about the Psalms is that God can use the Psalms to make us more human. Like the depths of humanity is not to bring us to a place where like we just feel like all joy and all the happies. Like the depth of humanity is that we feel the brokenness of what's around us. But there is an absolute certainty that God still reigns and that he sees the end from the beginning. And there can be a trust. And when things seem uncertain, we can see the hands of Jesus and we can say, those hands with scars are hands that I can trust. And so actually with, with the Psalms, like the prayers, when we're looking at the Psalms and we're on Psalms 41 and we've been doing it for a couple of three years, maybe um, coming in and coming out. And so we're, we're getting there. We'll get there. And we actually in Psalms 41, we're coming to the end of the first book of the Psalms, 150 Psalms, all the 150 Psalms that we have, Jesus would have had. Like he would have pressed into those songs for every different moment of life. Even upon the cross, he spoke of the Psalms for every moment of life. And so the first book of Psalms, the first 41 Psalms, you know, it starts with a, a familiar word that we see also here. It's almost like a bookend. And what we see in Psalms 41 in the first book of Psalms, it's almost, there's a little proverbial. It is a way to godliness. It's instruction. Like we find instruction of how do we monitor in this life? How do we move forward in this life when not everything works out? Like not everything works out. You should be shaking your head. Not everything works out the way you thought it should. But there's a certainty that God has foreseen it. You know, when we look at this psalm, it's going to show us what's possible in, in a praising life with its ups and downs. 
It's also going to show us what's possible in, dare I say, a happy life. A happy life that it's going to say that considers others. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, how do we even get that? And it's going to be through a, a redeemed life. An indestructible integrity that God won't refuse. And so th- those are my points. And I promise I'm going to try to do this quickly. And as long as this page stays down, I'll, I'll keep moving. But I'm going to try to do it quickly where we look at this. And those, those are the points. We're going to look at a praising life, a happy life, and a redeemed life. And so the very first thing, like, look at this, a praising life. And let me just say it this way. Like, a praising life has ups and downs and even persisting questions that may not get answered in your lifetime. And yet, the first book of Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, it's going to persist in this. It's going to say that it can become a life of worship. Like Psalms 41, like if we've already stated, it's the last psalm in the first book. Over 150 psalms, there are five books of the psalms. And it actually starts with a very familiar word. You know, if we look at this, what we see um, as we look at it, we see like this is a closing out of the book. So look down at verse 13. In 13, you see a doxology. And so it says this, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlast to everlast, amen. And so when it says this, like from everlast to everlast, it's saying all the encompassing moments of your life, everything that can happen. And when we look at like a Romans 8, 28, and it says, for God works all things out, what he means is all things can happen. And so from everything, from everlast to everlast, all of these things can be praises unto God because the name Psalms, it actually means praises. And so if we just kind of look over, like first we would just say like, this is instructional into a godly life. Like, like the first book, it gives us instructions in a godly way of life. It has ups and downs, joys and disappointments, great uncertainty and utter betrayal. And this instruction of the godly life includes all of these things. I remember when we, uh, Kenzie and I, uh, had our first baby, so Quinn. And so I got to stay home uh, for about five days. Some people get like like lots of maternity. I got to stay home five days. And then I was like, man, I got to escape this and I got to go back to work. It is way easier there. And so, but like being home, I remember like all the needs and all the demands, they are all new. I remember having this thought, like how can anyone like have a job and do this at the same time? And in the moment of saying that, I thought, man, like the pioneers, like they like went over the Rocky Mountains in wagons and had children along the way. And I just felt shame. But all the ups and downs of life like the first book of Psalms, it wants to instruct that it's actually praises. Psalms means praises. There's a praise that is appropriate for every moment life can bring. Like, let, let that sink in for a second. Like, I don't want to belittle loss and betrayal and brokenness, but the Psalms are going to say really loudly, like, you can bring all of that before God, and there is actually a praise that is appropriate that you can look in that moment of that valley of that darkness, and you can say, God is good. 
Like, like look at some of the things that we've covered. Like Psalm 16, there's a praise that is possible. And when we declare Psalm 16, 6, where it says, the lines of my life have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Like that's an easy moment to praise God when you look at your life and you say, man, it is working out. There is peace and there is contentment and God has been faithful. I can testify that he is good. He has shown up. Like there is a psalm of praise appropriate in that moment. But there's also a psalm of praise appropriate in like a Psalms 13 verses one and two, where David says, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? Like that's abandonment. I don't have anywhere else to go, only myself. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? Or just what have we covered? Like what else have we seen? Like uh, Psalms 3, will God help me? Like a persistent question, God, will you actually help me? Or Psalms 10, will God answer me or why don't you answer me? Or you see questions and prayers for the suffering like Psalm 6 or prayers for those who are wrongfully accused like Psalm 7 or even the middle of this Psalm. Like if you're just looking at the Psalms as a whole, we just, we looked at the doxology, talk about God from everlast to everlast, that there's a supremeness to God, that he can actually work things out in your life. And there is an appropriate praise for every season. But the beginning of this, we see this incredible promise, but the middle of it, we see the circumstances of David. Like in the middle of verses three through 10, we see sickness. We see enemies lining up in malice. That means hatred. We, we, we see uh, gossip and slander. We see the betrayal of close friends that I've eaten with. Like just read this. In verse three, it says, the Lord sustained him on his sickbed. Like he's talking about himself. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed and in his illness, he restores him to full health. As for me, I said, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me for I have sinned against you. Look at those words, sickbed illness. Heal me. Be gracious and heal me. Kinsey, um, for about 10 years, uh, she's been lobbying that we get a new mattress. And so we finally did it. Uh, 10 years. So this is like a 17-year-old mattress. And uh, she lobbied with this, like saying, hey, our 250 mattress, Lady Americana mattress, it's not quite a brand name yet. Um, it may not be the best for our health. And my response is like, what, you don't like waking up injured? I mean, would you ever get out of bed if it just didn't hurt, you know? And so we finally got a new mattress and like walking in with masks, not knowing if we could lay on the mattress or not, not knowing what we could do. And the, the salesman, he came up and he says, what kind of bed are you looking for? And what I didn't say is I'm really in the market for like a sick bed or, or I'm looking for my death bed. I didn't look for any of those things. But look at the text. David found it. And I'm going to say something really incredible to you. I think if David were here before us, he would say, the sickbed that I found, and then later the deathbed that I found, there was an appropriate praise to the goodness of God in that moment. Grace that I could never have anticipated showing up revealed itself in those dark, dark moments. 
It's instructional. You know, look at verse 5. It says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words with while his heart gather iniquities. And he goes out, he tells it abroad, like he finds enemies in malice wishing that he would die. They are total meanies. Like total meanies. It goes on, verse 7, it says, All who hate me whisper, hate, whisper, gossip, whisper together about me. They imagine the worst of me, not giving me the benefit of the doubt. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. They look at my circumstance and they say, I hope he dies. David found a sickbed. David had malicious enemies. David had slander, gossip all around him. Verse 9, even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, who've been at my table, have lifted his heel against me. This life of worship included betrayal, slander, enemies, sickness. And then we get the imprecatory part of the psalm in verse 10 where he says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and rise up that I may repay them. Which is just the way you feel sometimes. God, give me the power to get them. And it's just the way you feel. You need to take that to God and let God work that out for you. But I contend that there's a praise in each of these moments. They're all over book one of the Psalms. There's a praise to God in the depths of loss and abandonment. There's a praise and disappointment and dead ends. Like praises don't just exist in good fortune and comfortable circumstances. They exist in longings averted. A life of praise is much deeper than you realize. The Psalms want to inform you on a singing life. For God is from everlast to everlast. Amen. And amen. And so the, the very first thing that we see is a worshiping life doesn't always look the way we would have planned or the way we want. But then it gets, it gets even better. It also tells us about a happy life. Like a happy life considers the weak. Like the first word of this song, like in, in our translation, it says blessed. Other translation, it says good fortune. But what it means is the same idea of, of like a happiness, like a continence, a security, a, a certainty that God sees and that God's going to come through, that a good father actually wants the best things for me, that even if I ask for bad things, he's not going to give me a bad things because he's a good father and he wants to give good things. And so it starts, Psalms 1, it starts with the same word. Happy is the man. And then we bookend it with Psalms 41 to close the first book. And so it starts and ends with this idea of a happiness that God can actually bring through all the things that we just talked about. Like a lot of commentators, they say, hey, we usually talk about it in terms of blessedness or in terms of like a fortune, but like that misses a lot of the strength of the word. Like it is a continence changing upon yourself that there is a certainty that God is for you. And I just want to ask this like, are you happy? Or, or what, what kind of crazy, expensive things have you done to try to be happy? Like I have learned something, like Kinsey has pointed this out to me. Like I, when I am sad or when I am uncertain, I buy junk. 
Like I am just certain that if I buy something on Amazon, it is going to fix me. And so I get nervous about preaching outside and it's going to be hot. And so I get certain that there's a pair of shorts on Amazon that won't make my legs look so skinny or so white. And so I'm certain it will fix it. And here they are. Amazon's essential, delivers in three days. And so like, like there's a, like, what do we do to try to find, like, I'm just going to, pre- I'm, I'm going to tell you this. You have done crazy things. I'm going to, you have done sinful things in a pursuit to find a contentment and a happiness. And th- that, that same Content and happiness is looking to God and saying, I don't know if I can actually trust you or your timing. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if you're present in everything that Psalms 1 through Psalms 41 has described, a betrayal, loss, and brokenness. I don't know if there's something in that for me. The first word of Psalm 1 is the same as the first word of Psalm 1 as a bookend. I just want to ask this, does it help? to know that the Bible does, in fact, talk about a contentment and a happiness? Does it help that the Psalms let you eavesdrop on the prayer of others in deep lament and uncertainty, expressive joy and satisfaction, and yet this first book of the Psalms starts and ends with instruction on how you can find a happiness? Like, does that help? And what would you expect to follow those words? Like, look look at verse one. Like, happy is the one. Like, what would you expect to follow those words? Happy is the one who has a brand new boat. Or happy is the one who has a G6 uh, jet. I listen to rap music, so I know what that is. Happy is the one that, I mean, whatever you would put there. I mean, and we just read Ecclesiastes in the Bible reading plan. If you're not reading in the Bible reading plan, you're missing out. Uh, it's like we're talking different language. You should read the Bible. Write that down. We're Protestants. And so like, if you're missing out on that Ecclesiastes, you have to use some contextualization, but it says that jet will not bring you happiness. Look at what it does say. Blessed is the one, or happy is the one, who considers the poor. It actually cuts across everything that we might actually think about us, because we would say, happy is the one who has other people consider them, or happy is the one who who considers themselves to get what they need. But this is, happy is the one who considers the poor. First word, the first word we want to look at, poor, it's actually better to translate that as helpless. Someone who is marginalized, in need, and vulnerable, they have little power for themselves. And so it says, listen, church, if you want to find contentment, and happiness. It says you need to stop thinking about you and your position and we need to start thinking about people who are less benefited. People who are stuck in systems and structures and darkness. You know, I started watching The Chosen and I kind of wanted to avoid it because I thought it'd be really cheesy. You know, it'd be like, Swedish Jesus coming in to bless everyone. Um, And man, I actually, I've only like three in. I actually really love it. Like, uh, Jesus, uh, he's kind of goofy. Like, I don't know if anyone else picked up. Like, he's kind of, I'm not calling Jesus goofy. Don't write that down. Uh, but in this, he's kind of goofy. But the first episode, 
Like you start, and you have background story, you know, it's not in the Bible, but you have Mary Magdalene, and you have, um, you have Simon Peter, and you have Andrew, his brother, and you know, all life is kind of falling apart. You even have um, Nicodemus, and man, he's coming to the ends of his faith where he realizes, man, I know a lot about the scriptures, but like this darkness I can't handle. And man, it just keeps building and building. And so Mary Magdalene, I mean, we know from the scriptures that she was possessed and Jesus delivered demons from her. We also know from church history or we presume from church history that she was a prostitute. And so it gives some of the background story of how we got there. And the whole time I'm watching it, I am thinking, man, when is Jesus going to show up? Like this is dark. There are low moments and it is desperate. And like, when is he going to show up? Who is going to go into the darkness for this woman? Who's going to show up? And then it's a little anticlimactic and a little goofy, but just at the last minute, man, he shows up and he's like, Mary, you don't need that. And they like cast the demons out and just, you know, they hug. Um, but like there's this darkness that this says, happy is the one who considers that need. Who steps into that kind of brokenness. And that actually the second word like considers, it doesn't just say sees. Like when it says considers, it means careful, sustained attention. Church, this, this is telling us that if we want to walk in the Spirit and have a contentment that we have a certainty about Jesus, it means that we have to step into darkness, find people who are marginalized, people who don't have power for themselves, and to say, man, here I stand. And that's counterintuitive how we usually think we're going to find happiness. Like, think, think, think about Acts 4 with me just for a second. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, and they encounter, right after that, what do they get? Radical sharing. You jump to the end of chapter 2 and verse 44 through 45, they start sharing with one another. The experience of salvation, it leads to generosity to the poor, and what leads to more people being open to the message of the gospel. <clears throat> and then you step into Acts 4. I'm thirsty. I'm better. And then we step into Acts 4, and we find the same thing and even more. We find persecution, but gospel proclamation. We find imprisonment, and we find people selling their land to give to those in need. The economic sharing from the people inside the church gave great power to the preaching of the resurrection to those people outside of the church. Or, or then we jump to Acts 6, and after the, the, the deacon ministry is more firmly established, Luke writes this. He says, So the word of God spread. The numbers of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The word so, when it says that in verse 7 of Acts 6, it means all the incredible sharing, the considering of the poor, the considering of those who are in need. Like, it gives strength to a gospel proclamation that we value another kingdom when we are willing to step into darkness at great expense to ourselves. And yet our culture is so certain that happiness will be fine when I think of my needs. When I think of how people are sliding me. And this says, happiness, blessed is the one who considers the helpless. And maybe even more than that, look at verses two and three with me really fast. Look at these, these pretty cool promises that come with that. It goes on to say, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. 
The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land and you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed and in his illness, you restore him to the full health. Like you see all those promises, like delivers him, protects him, keeps him, sustains him, restores him. And even David, he still found a sick bed and later a deathbed. But even if you can expect this, even if you can contrive that maybe the counterintuitive nature of looking to the needs of others is reflective in the nature of God, and maybe even that, to some extent, you know, the Holy Spirit, you will find this contentment. Or maybe even, like it still comes to this big question, how do I get that? Because you have to be honest. You've had moments of generosity towards someone and it didn't quite deliver what you thought it would. <laughs> You've had moments where you have stepped out and asked for forgiveness when you like hold 10% of the conflict and they didn't own up to any of their side. Like you were like, hey, I'm sorry. And they said, well, thank you. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you have something else to say to me? You've had moments where you tried to help someone and they didn't want help the way you give. You've had moments where this kind of thing hasn't worked. And so how can my life praise in disappointment and trouble? How can I not be enslaved my wants and desires? How can I get the promises of deliverance, sustainment, and restoration of everything we saw in verses 2 and 3? And the answer is found in 11 and 12, and it's actually not good news. It's not initially good news. It's a redeemed life, but it says that a redeemed life is possible by presenting to God a life of indestructible integrity. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, it says, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemies will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. Because of my integrity, you will uphold me. Because I have done things right. Because I've had the right countenance. Because I've had the right attitude. Because I've done the right things. Because of my integrity, my moral uprightness, my complete honesty, <clears throat> my ethical fortitude. Because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. In your presence forever. That's a, that's a promise of salvation that's a promise of, of a redeemed life. And so he says, David says, because of what's inside, because of my integrity, you've done this. But the problem is this was said by David. Like David, yes, a man after God's own heart, but David also, the events of his life also wrote 2 Samuel 11, which in the Bible reading plan, we just read that. <clears throat> like this is David, like the kind of integrity that steals a man's wife. Or, or David, the kind of integrity that orchestrates her husband's murder. Or David, the kind of integrity that covered his tracks with political power. <coughs> or David, the kind of hypocrisy that when Nathan stands before him and tells him a story about a soul and sheep, he is irate with anger, but yet he gives buys and justifies his soul and wife. Like, I'm not for sure if David had the kind of integrity to secure this kind of deliverance and this kind of sustainment and this kind of restoration before God. And I'm certain I don't have it either. But the mystery of the Bible, 
was made known in the person of Jesus that there is an indestructible integrity that we can present to God on our behalf that gives us this kind of deliverance, that gives us this kind of sustainment, that gives us this kind of certainty from everlast to everlast in your presence forever. And it would be to consider the integrity of Jesus. Like a life that sang praises. Jesus faced betrayal, disappointment, torment, rumors, wrongful execution. And he tells us why he did it in John 10. In John 10, in verse 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Obedience to walk to the point of death. But Jesus also had the happy life that considered the helpless. Like Philippians 2 and verse 5, it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus in eternity past, he didn't consider just staying in heaven as an option for him. He considered those who had no power for salvation, and he stepped toward us. And to gain the Lord's favor, we have to present to God not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And that means we have to put hope in that righteousness. That means, like it's 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we have to accept that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We have to accept that that's sufficient. We have to accept things like a Romans 13.14, that when it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, we have to look at that and say, I'm going to trust that there is an integrity that can stand on my behalf when mine fails, and I'm going to look at that, I'm going to trust that, I'm going to look deeper into that, and that's going to drive deeper into me. And in that process, we find the message of the gospel not just for us, but also for people around us. And in the same way that Jesus didn't just stay in heaven, but he went out into darkness, we start to mimic that sort of thing. And in that process, we find a contentment with Christ. We find a happiness. And we start to trust in like a Romans ten thirteen for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The indestructible life of Jesus the integrity of Jesus is the only thing that can merit God's action in your life for deliverance, sustainment, and restoration. That was so fast. You're so nimble. Let me pray for us. Father, when we look at the Psalms, just what is apparent to me is that all things are possible. And so, Lord, that means like right now in this parking, like there are people who are facing like extreme disappointment and they're unsure. That there are people who are, are facing sickness. 
Like we're all facing like sickness to some degree, but there are people who are facing sickness. There are people who have loved ones that are facing a sick bed or even a deathbed. And like this is making an audacious claim that there is a life of worship. Like there's a song of praise in those moments. And it comes from a certainty that the life of Jesus is enough. That if I declare Jesus to be Lord and I look at God and I say, I don't have a righteousness of my own that will, that will get me what I need or what I want but I am confident that the righteousness of Jesus is more than enough. But Lord, there's also, there's us that we need to look at a Philippians 2, and we need to look at a Psalms 41.1 that says, Blessed is the one, happy is the one who considers the poor. Like, Lord, we need to look deeper where darkness is to just expose it. And there's a way that that life, it's complicated and it hinders. It doesn't work out on schedule. But this is saying that that's where the presence of Jesus is. So Father, we need you. God, Lord, I pray that we would find um, that kind of joy, but we would look to the person of Jesus for it. Even out in the parking lot, we want to make prayer available. And so we're going to end out with some worship. And so if you find yourself, you're like, man, there is just a darkness in my life or there's a deep discontentment. Um, The best that we can through mask um, and through all of that, I mean, you know, just arms out, arms out. That's six feet. You're good. We'll have that available just kind of back here in the middle. And so we'll have a few people with lanyards and they can be available just to pray for you. You can tell them as much as you want or as little as you want. Also on the liturgy, you'll see an area where you can click it and it'll take you to the link that says a prayer or a need. And if there's a prayer or a need, just something that we can join praying with you or reach out to you, man, we would love to do that. And so you can click that and fill it out. But like that's an expression. Like That kind of movement is an expression of like my integrity or my worth is not enough. I need the people of God, and I need God. Like That can be a movement of obedience. Stand with me, and we'll walk out.